Hello, it's Jack Tudor here of Attention Magazine. Welcome to Crucial Listening, the podcast where I speak with musicians and sound artists about three albums that are important to them. My guest this time is Jessica Pavone, a composer and violist based in Queens, New York, whose new album Clamour is out now on Out of Your Head Records. Jessica's music particularly in the ensemble context, always gives me such vivid images. She really mindfully situates sounds within space in a way that you can visualize these lines running between the instruments, forming these almost geometric patterns that are rippling with the rhythmic instructions delivered upon Jessica's scores. She talks in this interview about finding pitch to be a particular challenge when composing in contrast to rhythm, which sounds like it's more effortless for her to work with rhythm. So with pitch, it does feel more shapely. It's more a case of like higher and lower than it is about any kind of melodic drive. She generates these circumstances in which the instruments all reside and flick between different patterns, the sides kind of sloping and shifting. It's beautiful. I mean, these four pieces take their names from inventions by women throughout history to circumvent obstructions to their freedoms. And these pieces feel like inventions. There's a real mechanical sensibility to how the instruments interact with each other. Like they're generating some kind of archaic machine of pulleys and ropes. It's wonderful. This conversation was great. Jessica has a very distinctive relationship with listening that we get into throughout this conversation and picked three cool records too. So if you're enjoying Crucial Listening, you can support it over at Coffee, ko-fi.com forward slash Crucial Listening. Any amount you please, one-off or monthly. And if you're just listening and enjoying, thank you so much. Okay, without any further ramble from myself, this is Jessica Pavone on Crucial Listening. Hello, Jessica. Welcome to Crucial Listening. Hi. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast. So you're here to talk about three important albums. Before we get to those, I want to talk about your new album, Clamour, which came out recently on Out of Your Head Records. So the four movements of this album take their titles from inventions by women that were utilised to circumvent obstructions to their freedoms And I've seen you write and heard you talk, in fact, in a couple of places about the process of researching this. So what point did it feel like that was something that you wanted to do to kind of accompany your process of digging into? Sure. Well, it was I wrote the first movement. Um, I knew I wanted to write for strings, a piece for strings and for Katie, who plays bassoon. And I. I knew I wanted the format to be four movements and the first and last movement were going to be just strings and the two middle movements would feature Katie because I had written a piece with a similar format a couple of years ago with uh, string string ensemble and soloists and I kind of wanted to follow that format. And so when I started writing the first movement, I had you know no idea, as you never do, you don't really know what's going to happen. And I Mm-hmm. sat down at the piano I came up with a couple of notes that I wanted to work with and I started to come up with the form of the piece 
And in the middle of that movement, there's this kind of back and forth seesaw rhythm that started to evolve. So some phrases were eight bars long and some phrases were nine bars long. And I was just working with this back and forth seesaw rhythm. Mm -hmm. Um, And when I was finishing the piece, I was starting to just think about the seesaw. And I wasn't even thinking of the rhythm as a seesaw. I was just thinking of it as this back and forth rhythm that had evolved. And so I started just researching the origins of the seesaw. And that's something that's just interesting to me anyway, is where do things originate from? Like who was the first person to think of this or where? And so what I discovered is that like many things, the seesaw was kind of simultaneously invented all over the world, you know? Like there was a, a seesaw in Scandinavia, there was a seesaw in Korea. So I just started seeing like all of these origins of the seesaw. So I was like, oh, that's interesting that all of these different cultures came up with a seesaw. Um, and what I learned about the the Korean seesaw is that women invented it. I can't remember what century because this research was done a while ago. Um, because they like they were not allowed to leave like the walls of their property. And so they invented this seesaw. It's a standing seesaw and it's like a competitive sport, I think now. It's like not an easy thing to do to be standing up and going back and forth on a seesaw. And you can see YouTube videos of it. It seems quite challenging. Um, But the reason they invented it is because they wanted to see beyond the walls of their property because they weren't allowed to leave. And they wanted to see like what was going on in the town. And I think, I mean, I did read somewhere they wanted to see if their husbands were cheating on them. But this was just like women who were, you know, married. It was, you know, not they were not allowed to leave. So that's how they just looked out into the town. So I thought that was interesting. I was like, oh, this is interesting. And I kind of wanted to title the the movement after that. And I had to think about it for a while. And then I just thought that it would be interesting if all of the pieces were titled after similar inventions. So that's when I started trying to find more information, which took me most of the year. It was like, I worked on the piece off and on. I started it in January. Started the piece that was in January. And I didn't pick it up again until the summer because um, I had no means actually to produce the piece. And so I just happened to be in January. I was at a residency and I knew I wanted to write this piece. And I was like, well, I have these three weeks to work on music. I guess I'll start this piece, even though I know that there's no way that I can produce it because I had no funding. Um, so I wrote that movement and then I kind of left it. And then in the summer, I f- figured out a way that I was going to be able to premiere the piece in the fall. So I was like, okay, I have to finish this piece in the next couple months. And that's when I really started to research the other movements. But in that time between January and the summer, I thought about, oh, that would be cool if I could find other inventions like that. Um, so it had been kind of like smulling around in my brain throughout the year. One thing I heard you talk about in another conversation was rehearsals. It sounds like a very interesting time when you bring these pieces in for rehearsal and you start to get in dialogue with the players that you're working with. Um, What are your memories of bringing this selection of pieces in for the first time and getting people familiar with it? Like, what was that experience like? What was the kind of feedback you were getting? Yeah, Mm -hmm. take me through that a bit. Sure. So, I mean, there's six string players and then there's Katie who's playing bassoon and we all live in New York and Katie lives in Atlanta. So how I structured the rehearsals, our our premiere was to be in the middle of November. So in October, I did a rehearsal with just the string players. And then in November, when Katie, because Katie came to town, we had to do it all in that week. We did two rehearsals with Katie and then the performance. So in the October rehearsal, we primarily focused on the two movements that just featured the string players, which was the first and the last movement. Mm. And then the second rehearsal, which was with Katie, we just focused on her movements. And then the last rehearsal, we focused on the entire piece. Um, But I do work with the same musicians um, as much as I can. I found a group of string players that I really like working with. And because there's fluidity in the system in which I write, they have an understanding of that. And they also, a lot of times will give me feedback and input as to ways that they think some of the things I'm trying to communicate could be more effective because I'm not always working with traditional notation and Mm -hmm. I'm trying to communicate things that aren't, I mean, sometimes I am, but not always that aren't necessarily um, 
now I'm kind of inventing ways to write to communicate mm. what I want in a way so I could I kind of say I want there to be this element of freedom but I need to use notation in a way so that somebody else will understand it and sometimes they will just have opinions about like a certain sound world that we're in and they'll say oh what if we what if we stay in this sound world a little bit longer or when we're actually physically playing these sort of some of the extended techniques that I'm coming up with we'll physically be doing it and be like oh this might make more sense if we try it this way so they do um give feedback um and it's always helpful and then you know when katie came into the rehearsals katie's also a composer and she had a lot of great and most of what katie's insight and opinions were was like let's stay in this section longer because i think for me sometimes i try to rush through things because i don't want to you know i like to be in a stasis of sound but i'm like i'm always concerned with like boring the listener or like and katie was (laughs) really good really good at being like Pavone, this this sound you're working with here works. Like, let's just stay stay in it for a little longer. So, a right. lot of what happened too in the rehearsal is because I use time based scores, not always, but quite often. So, there's like a clock, and we're in a particular measure for a while, and we 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 ended up changing a lot of the times because I don't know what it's going to sound like until it's not like I can just put the finale playback on and get a MIDI version of what I'm doing. Right. Um, yeah. You know. So. Um, a lot of what we altered in the rehearsals was the times for how long we stayed in certain sections and the amount of intensity certain sections had, you know. While we're talking about the structure of the piece, my final question on Clamour is actually about the ending. Mm -hmm. I'm learning that I really like the way that you end your records. I mean, there's a couple that I've heard. I think kind of this one included really where it sort of feels like it's ending on like an arm outstretched it's sort of just like heading somewhere as it's coming to a conclusion <laughs> at least that's how it's hitting me and it's like a really wonderful feeling because you know you feel the vigor of that as it comes to a close but yeah how easy do you find it to conclude your records or is there a way that you well, kind of approach that i'm curious what other if there's what, what other records and if you can recall what other records in particular uh, you're thinking lol, i was listening to lol today and i had the uh, very very similar sensation on that one too um, okay yeah there's something that felt kind of hung about the way that it comes to a close which felt huh. very satisfying yeah well i do feel like when i'm writing pitch is the thing that's the most difficult for me i can come up with rhythmic structures and cycles very easily and pitch is the hardest thing for me and i try to how do i choose chords that aren't obvious or how do i choose chords that aren't chords so like i have the hardest time deciding on pitches um right so a lot of times I'll give players like pitches to alternate with. So like, I'm not even choosing the chord. Um, but mm. I do know I can remember exactly how clamor ends. We're playing, we're playing metered music at 120. I remember we're doing something at 60 and then it double times to 120. Um, I mean that one I, I chose to end. There's such an ambiguous floating happening in the middle of bloom. And so I decided to, end in meter so that it was like concisive but it sounds like what you're picking up on is the pitch material that i'm using Mm, and mm -hmm. from what i remember is i don't i think it's it's a non-resolving chord (laughs) but there's no key to resolve to because i don't write in keys (laughs) right yeah um yeah so my relationship to pitch is really complicated i don't um i ignore keys although yet i do think of chords but i think of more just like how open a chord is like I'll think of if if notes happen to fit into a chord, I kind of like them to be as spaced out from each other. So like think of like a ninth chord, but like the root is three octaves lower, you know, that's kind of how I think. I think of like covering a a large, not always, but you can do that when you have bass and violin in the same ensemble. So I'm more thinking about how much space the chord is taking up. And I do, I do, I will, there are chords there, um, but I'll invert them in such a way that they're kind of unrecognizable. And I am working at the ending of that piece. I think it ends in consonants, but I, I am throwing quarter tones in and a lot of the writing as well. Mm. 
mm-hmm. especially in bloom. So that kind of puts everything off kilter. Lol, I can't exactly remember how it ends. No, um, you know what's, I mean, I can't recall it now. It's just funny. I felt the same or the, a similar kind of feeling come back in as it came to a close. It's, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's probably nice. me like knowing there needs to be a conclusion, but not wanting there to be like a cadence. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's great. Oh, I love it. Well, like I say, Clamour is fabulous. I will include a link in the show notes so people can check it out and please do. Um, so, Jessica, let's get to your important records now. One mm-hmm. question I'd like to ask at this point is how you thought about the word important when picking your list. So was there a way that you understood the word important in order to come up with the list that you did? I thought of records that I could listen to 700 times and never get sick of, and I probably have listened to 700 <laughs> And also the three records that I mentioned, I don't even really listen to them so much anymore but there were periods of my life where like that's all I could listen to and when I discovered them especially two of them when I discovered them I couldn't I could only listen to them for the longest time but then also I do think that there's something about those records that informs how I like to create music so I do think it's like record because I mean there's also like tons of pop records that I like that I listen to, but I don't think that they influence my work in quite the same way as these pieces have. All right. So let's go for your first important record. I don't know if you had an order in mind, but yeah, tell me the name of your first important record and a bit about why it's important to you as well. Okay. Well, I remember the three that I told you, so I'll just give them in the in the order that I discovered them. Obviously, like this one, the first one's obvious. Like I discovered this one first because it's um, Beethoven's Ninth Symphony mm-hmm. is a really important piece for me, um, especially since I'm a string player who I don't play classical music. I don't identify with classical. I just don't. You when you play a string instrument, you grow up playing that repertoire and I was always in the position where I was playing this music, but I didn't identify with it. But I always, for some reason, resonated with Beethoven. Um, Mm. And it took me probably not until I was in college when I realized, because I I grew up playing string string instrument, and then I went to a conservatory where that's all you do is play classical music. And I was like, I really don't like this. Um, But I don't think I realized it until then. I just thought I was just like playing what my teacher was telling me to play. Um, But the Ninth Symphony in particular, like I've literally, I have a book of the score. I've literally have sat down and listened to that piece with the score multiple, 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 multiple times. I'm just like obsessed with the way that piece sounds. And I think, I don't know what it is. I, I have some kind of kindred spiritual thing with with Beethoven I think part of it with that piece you can almost like hear his schizophrenia in that piece it's the he changes moods so quickly Mm. like it's just all he's just kind of all over the place like dancing with this idea of being like kind of all over the place Mm -hmm. in that in that piece um I can never hear I can never hear it and be like oh I'm sick of this piece huh that's so it. interesting. So this is yeah. this is the one, or like it's like rather... the most it's like the most traditional piece I would ever probably identify as as an influence. Wow. So when when was this really hitting for you? How old were you when you were really into this piece? Well, I did. I remember my senior year of college. We did we did this piece, and I played in the orchestra, and I was in the choir. Because that oh. that la- that semester I had to take choir for some reason. So when we did the concert, I played in the orchestra, but I was going to the choir rehearsals. So I was like completely enmeshed in this piece. Um, wow. But I don't even think it was till after that. I kind of feel like it was sometime in my 30s or something where I got my hand on the score and I really just started listening to it a lot. And yeah, just realized like how much it has stuck with me although kind of all of all of his symphonies um and i do want to think back on it when we were when i was in orchestra in college like i never really want i was that interested in the music but whenever there was like a beethoven symphony i was like into it i don't know why i just like his music um Uh. and yeah somebody gave me a book of the score maybe like for my birthday one year i can't remember and then i just started reading the score um yeah wow do you have many memories of what it was like to play 
this piece? I mean, is it? I have literally no experience with playing classical music, so I mean, is it challenging? Or yeah, what does it feel like to actually play this piece? I have more memories of listen- this particular piece. I have more memories of listening to it than playing it. Right. Um, my memories of playing in orchestra is always just feeling like, can I keep up? Am I doing this right? What am I doing? Right. Right. There were some, you know, I, I, my, I, part of why I became a composer, like in hindsight, when I think about it, um, going, I really didn't like going to music school. I didn't know what it was going to be like. I went to music school, and so much of being a viola player in music school, and they put you in the classical tradition, at least that's the track I was in, is being told everything you're doing wrong. Like there's mm. only one way to play this, and you got to, I was never good at like, articulation or interpretation and just constantly being told what you're doing is wrong and i was like well if i write my own music i'm in i'm basically inventing it and nobody could tell me it's wrong i think it was like so many years of just feeling like everything i was doing was wrong so Mm. my experience of what i remember playing in the orchestra was like hiding out in the back of the viola section like not wanting anyone to realize like am i playing out of tune like what am i you just think just thinking like (laughs) i felt like everybody here knows what's going on but me Right. And I've always felt that way. Even even when I was like in high school and I would play in like the county orchestras, I was always like in the back of the section, just so self conscious. Like, did I play a new edit tune and everyone can hear it? Mm. That's it was it was mostly just terrifying. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um I've heard you talk about uh composing and relating to performers for whom you're composing in a way which feels very nourishing and nice. So I'm wondering whether that's a response to that feeling like I've heard you talk about wanting performers not to feel stressed and yeah to feel that's, like yeah, for it, them yeah yeah absolutely yeah because it um why does this have to be I'm also playing a string instrument it just can be can be painful um right. yeah why does this have to hurt why does this have to be so technically challenging like I'm not into the um the dexterity it doesn't mm. need to, I don't know the the jockery that kind of comes with I mean, I think technique is good, but yeah, I'm sure it's all a reaction to how I felt learning to play music. With this Beethoven symphony then, I mean, I don't know whether this is a fair question given how intimately you relate to the whole thing, but are there particular sections that strike you or that really connect with you throughout this piece? The beginning of the first movement. Right. You know, it's like super quiet and then it's super loud and super quiet, super loud. Just like kind of, yeah, definitely the first movement. I'd say the first movement and probably the last movement. Yeah. Hmm. And the third movement. I mean, the third movement's so different. Yeah. Yeah. There's, um, I've never listened to this all the way through ever. And then there's a point. It's the weirdest chord that gets thrown in and I think yeah. it's about 50 minutes in maybe just after the Ode to Joy bit but it kind of concludes that movement I don't know if you know the yeah. one I'm talking about but it's yeah. loud and prolonged it's he, he's almost like he's really angry yeah it's such a strange chord for I think a lot of that piece is very strange for the time and that's another thing I think he's just being so genuine he's also deaf he's about to die Probably frustrated, mm. pissed off, totally crazy. And somehow he actually, I think, conveys it in the piece. And you mentioned that these records inform how you approach your music. So what does that look like with Symphony Number no. 9? Well, the one time I did write an orchestra piece, I started with a D minor chord. <laughs> so, <laughs> and that actually was by accident. I started writing, I was writing an orchestra piece back in 2015 and I, again, was like trying to come up with what's like the biggest, widest chord I can start this with. And I came up with this chord and I was like, oh, I like that chord. And I was like, I don't even think about chords. I just pick a bunch of notes and then I'll Hmm. be like, okay, I like these notes together. And then I'll write them down on the paper and be like, oh, that's just a D minor seven chord, you know? And then I was, then I was just like, wait a minute, this chord sounds familiar. And then I looked at the Beethoven score. I was like, oh, it's the same score. I mean, it's the same chord. Wasn't planning it. I was like, okay, I'm sticking with this. So I literally just went to the piano and just played some notes. And I was like, this is how I'm going to start. I do that quite often. And uh, it happened to be, I think, a D minor seven or D minor nine. And then I, yeah, 
I was like, okay, that's a sign. This is where we're starting. But then also I do kind of reference like the three, four a little bit that he like in the, from the third movement. Mm. But that's the only, I mean, I don't really think the way he writes influences the way I write in particular, except for, I think that I just love how you can feel his, you can just feel him through the music. It seems like mm. it just comes with somebody being so genuine with what they're doing, I think. So Jessica, let's go to your second important record now. So again, if you could give me the name of it and then a little bit about why it's important. Sure, it's um, John Cage, String Quartet in Four Parts, 1949. Um, That record blew my mind when I first heard it. Um, I remember exactly when I heard it. I I was in my early 20s and I was living, I was living in the East Village at the time and the inner library loan because I was living the interlibrary loan in New York, you can interlibrary loan in the borough that you live in. And so I was able to get music from the performing arts library, which is over by Lincoln center. So I was constantly just ordering CDs from the performing arts library to my library and picking them up. Hmm. I just remember like getting a stack of CDs, just, just whatever I could find. And so I just remember like coming home and putting that CD on and I had never heard anything like it. Like the, strings don't really sound like strings they sound like flutes kind of wooden flutes Mm. i was like what is what is this and i think also like with cage you know he's known for all you know the all the chance music and all this stuff but a lot of his like completely notated music that he was doing in the earlier years i think is so mind-blowing um this is just like that was like just the beginning of me discovering and getting into it um but yeah it just doesn't sound it just didn't sound like anything and i actually since then have taken that score out of the library and tried to play along with it and it's extremely difficult there's a lot of harmonic yeah there's a lot of harmonics that are hard to play and because i wanted to understand like how he got this sound um i'm not sure if you know the piece at all Um, well this this cage piece yeah uh, yeah i listened to it a couple of times today um and I saw as part of the score instruction, is it like that you, you avoid putting too much weight uh, on the the bow? Yeah, you know, like I don't that? remember. The, I, what, I took this score out probably 15 years ago, so I don't remember the details right. of the score. <laughs> right. Yeah, okay, I really yeah, don't remember yeah. the details. I, I haven't done anything like that in a long time. Um, mm. And I definitely think that that piece influences how I write for strings because I think I really try sometimes to make strings not sound like strings or not use vibrato you know Mm. so i think that that definitely that piece definitely more than um the beethoven symphony influenced how i write write music cage as well said that he had no feel for harmony there was this you know also this sense that he was trying to find means of composing which I guess channeled that um, mm-hmm. apathy towards harmony. I mean, from what you were saying about your relationship with pitch uh, and chords, mm-hmm. do you think that's another reason why you feel a connection to this one? Probably because I th- I feel like he he probably approaches approaching that the same way. Mm. It's more like kind of getting a sound, but also but also they're really concise. I mean, they're very rhythmically pretty tight. It's written out. It's all written out. It's just the it's just the sound quality that he's getting out of the string players I th- and out of the string instruments. I don't think I had ever heard before. You know, so much associated, so much associated with like strings is like this crazy vibrato. I just it's I when I hear like a like a, when I when I now when I hear like a classical violin like with all I just it it's almost like it's like nails on a chalkboard to me. Like I can't <laughs> I can't even handle that sound anymore. It's really hard to deal with, and I yeah. 
I don't see why that became the, it's kind of like opera singers. Like, why are you still singing like that? Like the reason right. they sang like that is because they didn't have microphones and you needed to project. It's like, give it a rest. You know, I don't know. That's kind of how I feel about uh, string instruments. And I feel like that, that cage piece really kind of nails it. The ending of this one as well is really striking. Like, what do you make of the, the, the way this one ends? Like the last two minutes kind of, again, felt a bit rem- reminiscent of listening to your records in the sense that, you know, this one enters this phase and then after a minute and a half, it's just gone. But it's like this really jovial. Yeah. And then there's part. like that one string that's like, it almost sounds like it's like a flute or a fife, like blowing over the whole thing. Mm, if I'm mm-hmm. if I'm remembering, I haven't honestly, like I haven't listened to this piece in a couple of years. So I'm trying to, all of these pieces that I told to you, I haven't, I haven't listened to in a while that I just know that they blew my mind I, if i'm remembering correctly i it's it's like dun, 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 dun. i'm not a good singer but but <laughs> there's the strings are kind of doing this repetitious thing and there's this one string that's kind of like above and just kind of like they're doing like kind of an ostinato sort of and it just ends mm-hmm. if i'm remembering that if i'm if the movement i'm thinking of is the one that is the last one which i can't recall right now Oh yeah, there's no again. It's just like it's like the piece is over. There's no need for a, a cadence. There's no need for like a big elaborate anything. But it does end with like motion. It ends with motion for sure. Yeah, because it sounded like so for for the predominant part of this piece, stillness and absence of motion seemed to be like a real driver of what you know Cage yeah. was was going yeah. for. Yeah. Right? And those are the yeah. parameters as opposed to like melody and harmony. And I think that I think about that a lot in music. I'm not focused on melody and harmony. I'm thinking about parameters. Is mm. it moving? Is it stasis? Movement? There's so many other things that you can do with sound. How do you relate to Cage outside of this piece? Like, do you connect with a lot of Cage's music? I feel like the music of his that I resonate more with is the earlier composed music. There, mm. I, I haven't listened to him in a while. There's like, a, there's some percussion music from that time. I feel like I like his notated music from like the 40s, maybe better than some. Sometimes when there's, I mean, obviously when I first learned about Cage and what he was doing, I, my mind was blown because it was the, you know when you're in college and you you learn about 433, you're like whoa, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I don't always grasp like sometimes when it's just chance. I don't always grasp on you know it just doesn't conceptually I find it brilliant but it's not always something I want to listen to and this was was this you mentioned two of these that you really went in for and listened to over and over again so this sounds like mm-hmm. one of those right for you sure yeah over and over again yeah yeah I'd say like a good you know I probably discovered this piece like 20 years ago if mm-hmm. not longer and it was like huge for me back then like none of the pieces i mentioned to you are like new discoveries for me they're ones that like i discovered a while ago and have sort of stood you know as pillars for me you know i wasn't looking i guess i wasn't thinking about like what my contemporaries were yeah i was thinking about i guess the way i took the question was like what are some things that like changed pivot they're just they were all very pivotal to me uh-huh. And not necessarily, not necessarily like, oh, this is a new album someone I know just released and it's cool. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. That tends to be the, the kind of direction that most people, I think, go in on this podcast is like mm-hmm. they end up reaching way back. And like, so, yeah. you know, teens and 20s come up quite a lot, um, mm-hmm. which is really interesting. I mean, it's, it's interesting as well. You say that, you know, with these two, at least that you don't tend to revisit them. Is that standard for you? Do you tend to... I don't know. Do things stay where they were within time? I I have a very complicated relationship to listening to music. I'm trying. I'm always trying to like change that, but I very often will go a very long time and not listen to any music at all. And I think it's because a lot of the time when I'm writing, I don't want to hear anything. Mm. Um, so there's that, and then there is this thing where I hate deciding what to listen to. I find it very overwhelming. Yeah. So if I am listening to music, I will pick a record and I will listen to that record only for about like three weeks. I'll listen to the same record over and over again. And because I don't want to decide, I just hate to, I wish like there was someone in my house who just, well, I end up listening to the radio a lot right? because the radio is going to decide for me. Um, <laughs> right. Yeah. I find it really hard. 
Um, but I just rearranged my record player and my records so that they're more visible and I'm trying to like listen listen to them more. But it's I get overwhelmed by making the choice and so a lot of times I just don't even listen to music. Hmm. Which is not it's not the greatest, but I listen to I listen to less music and I also feel like in this period I'm talking about, like in my early twenties when I was taking all these CDs out of the library, it's like I was still searching and trying to figure out what I was doing and you're thirsty for new for new for I mean I still need I still need input, but I don't think as much as I did back then. I feel like I kind of know what I want to be doing and I have my a lot of my formulas in place, you know. Mm. So it's I think a different time too. I definitely was checking out stuff when it when a lot of this was very new to me in a way that I don't I don't checking out stuff isn't like the number one thing at this point in my life, you know, although I do love to hear music. I guess also as well, it's interesting to talk about the radio and the kind of relief of agency that that brings i suppose yeah you know back then um you you had less agency than you do now to just pick anything so you know it was what was accessible which at least act, yeah. acted as some kind of guiding principle to what you listen to but i mean i i mean i really like the sound of listening to the same record for three weeks is there something about yeah. that that's actually quite nice to dig into I something that. that intimately yeah i love that because then you really you you start to hear things in it that you didn't hear mm-hmm. before and yeah you just get to know it in a different way and there's like something comforting about the familiarity of it i think too Talking about listening to something over and over again feels like a nice segue to the final important record yes. that you picked, Jessica. And this so. one, I definitely, I have so many memories of being in the subway with my disc man listening. <laughs> I, there was literally like probably six months straight where I had like my disc man I used to bring in the subway and I would listen, I listened to this CD on repeat in my disc man, probably everywhere in the train walking i don't know i just was obsessed and i actually discovered this cd around the same time i discovered the cage piece huh. and it was in this it was in the same way i took the cd out of the library so this would have been over 20 years ago um you know i don't know that i don't know that you can get cds in queens i should look into that um well i guess things are different now with the streaming i find the whole streaming thing is just overwhelming because you can have access to anything that i don't even like i'd want to browse a catalog yeah. you know it's too yeah, hard exactly. i want to browse something uh anyway so this last piece it was terry riley um you're no good do you know that or have you listened to it yeah well i so i took it because when it came through it mentioned mm -hmm. it was you're no good um featuring harvey Avern, right? So, so yeah. I know there's a CD version that also has like a 60 minute piece on the other side. So I yeah. listened to this 20 minute piece, which is the one that you have the connection with. I'm trying. I'm just thinking of that piece. There might have been another piece on there, and I just never listened to it. Cause that's the other thing too is I would rip the CDs from the li like you can't do that anymore. Like you used to have like a, yeah, a CDRW, you could rip the CD from the library and you can listen to it. Like I, I ripped all these. You can't do that anymore. But I guess you don't have to. I just yeah. um, so that I think that there was two pieces on it, but I really just listened to that piece and that one in particular. I mean, I also like really like soul music. So the fact that he's sampling a soul song, which is a, in a really good soul song, but yeah. then just also the form and the development of that piece the, the more you listen to it you can hear like it sounds like it's the the beginning and the end is kind of more like this static and ambiguous but there actually is like a if, from what i remember and what i could feel is there's a there's a cycle happening there that's predictable of like where the blips are happening and where he's cutting um i don't know what the technical term is um, mm. And you really start to hear it if you listen to that piece over and over again. Wow. The there's a in the beginning and in the end before when he's not using the soul song, he's also 
there's a like a repetitive sort of just sort of electronic sound that also I feel like is being manipulated and there's like an underlining cycle happening as well. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. For sure. I, it is that is the weirdest transition. Um Yeah. Cuz cuz I didn't know anything about the piece before I listened to it. This is the first mm-hmm. time I've been acquainted with it. And did you only listen to it once? No, I listened to it a couple of times, but I still okay. found it really um there's something very visceral about the transition into the yeah. soul song which feels um you almost feel like you're getting the bends from yeah that movement, you know. Yeah. There's that and also going going out of it too. There's another whole, I don't know. Yeah. But I feel I feel like that's what did you feel like you started to hear more the more you cuz also it sounds like there's nothing going on. It sounds like this just sort of static thing, but the more you listen to it there's like there's something underneath there's something um, but did you so like by this by the second or third time did you hear more did it still kind of feel the same way I'm just curious because like I listened to that piece so many times that... <laughs> it felt like I started to really tune in to it feels like almost like an appraisal of the texture of that soul song and there's something uh-huh. about being released into it from that electronic beginning which suddenly mm-hmm. made me very aware of just the warmth and the energy of that soul music production and and it's the way as well obviously you know you get certain sections which are repeated and and diced up in such a way which augments the rhythm but mm-hmm. it feels it felt to me less about the rhythm and more about how the rhythm illuminates different aspects of like the raw texture like certain mm-hmm. symbols or yeah oh, and the phrasing mm-hmm. yeah for sure yeah what was so as someone who's listened to it hundreds of times what's your mm. journey been like with this um well again I f- actually i did listen to this song last jan this piece last january um but before then i hadn't listened to it in a long time right um so my journey with it meaning like how has oh, it influenced me or well in the same way that you know i've listened to it a couple three times now and my relationship with it is you know changing or different things are coming to light um do you feel that progression take place over you know the hundreds of times that you've listened to it i think what's interesting about it and when something that i just like in music in general is when something is changing but you don't even notice it's changing till it's something different mm-hmm. which i mm-hmm. think is an interesting technique and i think it's um, this is kind of like the perfect example of mm. of that you know I mean, they're yeah, they're obvious. I'm, I'm more thinking of the, the lead and then the lead out. Um, mm. But even still, you would think like listening to a song chopped up, you'd think it would be like jarring or irritating. But like the way it's done, it actually, it doesn't bother me at all. You know, no. I could I could see someone listening to this and being like, ah, oh, just let me hear the song. But I don't feel <laughs> that at all because I think just the way it's edited. It's just, it's just, I think there's some, some, some like rhythmic genius to whatever. I, I imagine, I don't know for sure, I imagine he deliberated on every decision. Oh, I, yeah. feel, I feel like a lot of thought was put, because it's so, it just, it sits so perfectly. Well, the loops are very precise as well. Like, they're clearly not off the cuff. Like, the, yeah. the, the rhythms are very exact. Yeah. Terry Riley, so are you into other terry riley works as well or is this the one i've listened to other works of his but none of them have resonated with me as much Mm. as this but yeah i would say aesthetically like i i i like his music but i feel like this this one really stands out and is this another one where you feel how this has informed how you approach composing music i'm not sure if it's informed how i write i definitely I, I like the idea of working with limited materials and doing as much as you can with mm-hmm. a little bit. And I think that he's kind of doing that here, or that's kind of what, in some ways, it, it is sort of an approach to minimalism. Um, but I do, I do definitely try to do as much as I can with as little as possible in some mm-hmm. of, more so I think in my solo music, I think it's more apparent in my solo music. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. where I've like essentially have made 
four albums of solo music based on the notes of the open strings and you think like that's kind of insane how can you come up with so many different things with the open strings but somehow i managed to do it (laughs) and i think that there's a similar thing here where he's working with like not very much material but doing something with it that's like striking and so is that the thing that makes it the important record i think so i would say yeah maybe that compositional it's again it's a kind it's a compositional approach kind of like the cage piece where the it's just based on a parameter maybe this one more so it's just based on a couple of parameters yeah because there's something very interesting where you know these three records um you know derive from say like 15 20 years ago uh and there hasn't been you know this really strong inclination to 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 listen to them and yet you know for like a podcast like this like they're the three records that come into your head um yeah, that's very interesting. Yeah, like, I mean, as we're talking, I'm thinking of other pieces that really kind of have blown my mind, but <laughs> not in the same way these have. And I wonder how much of it was like the age I was at mm-hmm. when I when I heard them, you know, where I was at in my development. Okay, Jessica, I've got one more question for you. Um, what have you listened to recently? The uh, you say you don't, you know, don't always listen to too much music, but is there uh-huh. anything kind of in recent memory that's really stuck out for you where you're like, ah, oh, okay, I really there are that. two things that have really stuck out. I'm I'm, realized, I'm thinking about things that I've heard on the radio that have blown my mind. Actually, three. What I've been listening to lately, though, is um, the Moon Glows. I don't. It's like a old doo-wop band it's like an old doo-wop band but the moon glows record i re just rearranged like my whole record player and went moved all my records to the other side of the apartment so that they were in and i that moon glows record kind of popped out and i put it on and for the last three days that's all i've been listening to and it's amazing and that's a record i I, like haven't listened again i haven't listened to this album in years and i still know every single word um so that's like on rotation right now but i can think of three pieces that when I listened to WKCR, which is um, it's a Columbia University radio station in New York, um, and there are three pieces that have come on WKCR in recent years that when they came on, my mind was completely blown. Mm-hmm. One of them was it was a Joanna Byer string quartet. I had mm-hmm. never even heard of her, and now since I've done some research, and she's yeah, she's a composer from the 1930s and then i want to i have to look up the name there's this pharaoh sanders song that came with pharaoh i gotta look it up pharaoh sanders okay it's called memories of edith johnson it's on the pharaoh sanders album called pharaoh okay amazing amazing um i've listened to the whole record and i don't like the whole record as much as i like that one track and the other thing was um it's christopher otto it was a piece for six or nine violins let me see christopher otto is a violinist in the jack quartet and Uh they played his piece for eight violins on wkcr one day and i was just like blown away completely blown away so i would say those are three pieces of music recently um what's going on in that eight violins piece um what about it connected with you well just the sound is so bonkers kind of like kind of like the way when i heard that cage piece i was like i've never heard something like this it's eight violins and i think that they're going through speakers as well it's like math i think he has like a math background so i think he works a lot with like the tones in between you know Mm -hmm. and it just sounds it sounds like an alien it sounds amazing so many violins layered and so many notes in between the tones it just sounds crazy it was another one of those things where I was like, oh, I've never heard something like this. Yeah, I'm going to have to dive into that. 
Um, yeah. So is that your radio station of choice? Yeah. Yeah. It's, they have really good programming. Um, yeah, it's Columbia University Public Broadcasting. Is that what it's called? Public Broadcasting? Public Public Radio. Yeah, they have, yeah, really good shows. There's, I'm trying to think of what the names of the shows are. Okay, so there's Out to Lunch, which is like a jazz show at noon. There's, uh, I mean, Bird Flight is the classic Phil Schapp, Charlie Parker show. Um, but they do like new music in the afternoons. I can't remember the name of that show. There's a show on Saturday called Crossing 110th Street, which is like kind of soul and funk. I, I also listen to WFMU, which is another radio station out of New Jersey. But I tend to mm-hmm. listen to WKCR more. Yeah, I kind of want someone else to make the decision. So, But I'm committed to start listening to my records again. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Jessica, thank you so much. Uh, I've loved talking about Clamour. I've loved talking about these important (laughs) records and the additional recommendations that we managed to wedge in at the the end as well. So thank you Mm -hmm. very much. Sure, thank you. And everyone listening, see you next time. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.